When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Soccer Show and a special welcome to our Canadian overlords, everybody. Put your loonies and your toonies on a World Cup trip for America's goody two-shoes neighbours to the north, everybody. Guys, how fun it must be to have a country good at soccer directly on your northern border of the country you were born in. It's a joy I will never know. Today, guys, we welcome the return of listener questions. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me today is a man who's had a much better international break than Mexico, right, Taylor Rockwell? I think I have. I didn't get waved off the field in humiliating fashion by the Canadian national team with a bunch of fans in a very cold weather stadium. So, yeah, I think on the whole, I've stayed warm. I've stayed happy. I've spent my time with Joe Lowry. What more could you want? What more could you want indeed? And you probably had a, yeah, a slightly warmer time, less snowbound yeah. you were, Tay Tay. <laughs> yeah, no no snow over here as of yet, but uh, definitely having more fun than our friends uh, uh, Mexico last night. But credit to Canada for the result and for going top of the table. It's pretty great. It's pretty wide open. It makes qualifying harder, but it makes it more interesting at the same time. Top of the Ocho for the Canucks. Yay. Who saw it coming? Not me. Or Paul Rudd. Uh, you mentioned his name, Tay-Tay. Joining us also is a man whose analysis hits harder than a Mikhail Antonio rocket. Joe Lowry, hello. <laughs> Oh, Ryan, I, I can only hope that one day that might be true. What a goal that was from Mikel Antonio. Oh, my goodness gracious. I was editing Allocation Disorder last night, and Paul and Sam were talking about what it was like to see and hear that goal in Kingston, in that stadium. What a strike. And, and sure, it, it kind of downed the U.S. a little bit there. But, man, just if you can separate the the fandom and the joy that comes oftentimes with watching the national team, if you can separate that from from just that pure soccer moment, what a moment it was. That moment, Joe, was only topped by the moment that happened seconds later. Uh, if you keep watching the clip, um, there's another Jamaican player who tries to boot the ball into the net as yeah. hard as he can <laughs> and trips on his own shoe, I think, and watches the ball dribble away. That was more more preferable as the moment of enjoyment than the goal for me, Joe. Oh, it, it, it was pretty great. There's several gifts of this floating around on Twitter. You can also just go back and watch it for folks who are listening to this show. It's a great moment. I felt... Uh, a, a bit of sympathy because I know myself I have done that many times. I'm not a very good soccer player. I've been there. I've done that, but still uh, objectively funny. Indeed. Uh, by the way, listener, Graham Rutherford not here today. He's on a massive bender after Scotland earned a World Cup uh, playoff place uh, by beating a Denmark side with most of its players. Missing, just saying, just saying. But uh, Graham, congratulations to your nation there. Gents, uh, I've got a question for both of you. Based on that Canadian game in what was, I think it was reported at something like minus 17 at some point. The Ice Tecca. The Ice Tecca, right? There we go. I love it. Good name. Um, so, Joe, I'll start with you. Where would you rather play in minus 17 in the Ice Tecca or like swampy Florida in July? 
I would pick swampy Florida it, it, just because my experiences line up a little bit better with warm, bad weather than really, really cold weather. But the humidity is something that we don't really have here in Arizona. And, and I feel like I'm dying trying to breathe in, in that kind of humidity. But still, my body is not conditioned for freezing and below freezing temperatures. So I've, I've got to go with the swamp. Taylor? Oh, I'm I'm going Ice Teca all the way. And I would go so far as to try to play in short sleeves with no gloves just to show how <laughs> tough I can be. Uh, but mostly because I know my fitness levels. I know the temperature and humidity in Florida. Uh, the MLS is back uh, article. I talked to Matt Pence and Pablo Moore about that. And even those professional athletes who maybe had like a month off coming back in were talking about how ridiculously difficult it was to play in the Florida heat. So I don't think I need any of that. I'll take feet of snow and freezing temperatures and, and angry Canadians with their maple syrup and whatever else they might be throwing at me. <laughs> I think I also would rather play in the uh, Edmonton snow, but I'd rather be in the Florida July. Yeah. Yeah, that checks out. I'm good with that. Yes. Yeah. I'd rather watch a game in Florida but play a game in Canada. There we go. And Tete, since we last spoke, we've seen a couple of USMNT games, one of which was in Cincinnati, the inferior Queen City. How was your trip there? I'm sure you've covered it, but how was it? It was wonderful. It was great to see the United States get the win. It was great to be there in person. That was my first ever uh, World Cup qualifier at that level, my first ever USA-Mexico game in person. It is the case that on those types of trips, even though I was there for, like, I think fewer than 48 hours, I probably slept a combined total of, like, six hours, which is uh, not necessarily enough over the course of two nights and definitely suffered for it on the way back. But that is nitpicking because I will take sleepless nights uh, with good friends and then with a good result for the United States. Uh, overall, a wonderful, wonderful trip. Sleepless nights with good friends. I will ask no yeah. more questions, Taylor. But uh, <laughs> you did witness a historic moment, a win at that Cincinnati Stadium. So congratulations uh, to you. They don't happen too often. Um, one, one other thing, one story before we get to listen to questions, guys, that caught my oh, eye. Um, the French Cup, the Coupe de France. Have you seen this story about uh, the team that made a 20,000-mile round trip for a French Cup game? Uh, this team is from Tahiti called AS Venus, um, and they traveled to France, the mainland France, to play Tresselac, uh, because the Coupe de France is open to all French territories. It has been so since 1961, which includes very much French Polynesia, where AS Venus are from. 8,500 entrants go into the Coupe de France every year, which is insane. Uh, so, Taylor, you may have had a little trip to uh, Ohio in your rear view, but make a, you must be glad you didn't have to do a 20,000-mile round trip for a game. That said, it sounds like they did that voluntarily. So I, I think that is a pretty impressive feat. That reminds me of those, uh, like the, the stories about the Russian second division teams that have to go from one side of Russia to the other side of Russia to play a game, which is... Uh, a decent journey, basically, across two continents. So I think, yeah, any teams that are willing to make that sacrifice uh, to play some soccer, I have to respect. Indeed. And uh, all the more, they lost 2-0. So it was no. all for nothing. No. Yeah. That's no good. It's no good. You know what is good, though, Tate? Our listener questions. Why don't we get started with one from uh, Killian Morris, who asks, which footballer would you want to be your dad? Mm-hmm. Joe, I'm going to come to you first. Okay, so I have some very deep analysis on this one. Uh, a lot of just really great reasoning. I have a few choices, and I'll, I'll run through all three of them because it won't take me very long. My first choice is my favorite one. Uh, it's Shalry Joseph. Uh, played a bunch of games for the New, New England Revolution. He's a Revs legend. 
Uh, because if he was my dad, then I would be Joseph Joseph. And I, I think that's funny, personally. I, I really tried, guys. I really tried to find someone with the middle name Joseph. But I only thought of that right now as you let us into this question. I did a really half-hearted Google. Couldn't find it. Gave up. Decided to lean all the way into Showery Joseph, which would then make me Joseph Joseph. So that's that's the first one I have. And it's my favorite, as I said. Juan Mata is, is the second one. Not for yes. any name reasons, but teaching me to be charitable as a small child with common goal. And, and I think Juan Mata has done a lot of great things for a lot of people. Now, my third choice is Clint Dempsey, just because I think this is, this is almost more of like a psychological curiosity that I have. I just would be really interested to learn more about Clint Dempsey as a person. Like, I don't think many people out there really know a whole lot about him, or maybe we know everything about him that we need to know. I can't decide which of those two things it is, but getting close to Clint Dempsey would be a fascinating experience. So shall we, Joseph, Juan Mata, Clint Dempsey, any of those three will do just fine. Excellent. I I love the wow. logic. You can't fault it. Taylor. That reminds me, uh, I've been rewatching Happy Endings, which is a show that is uh, mostly holds up and is still very funny. It's amazing. Uh, yes, amazing. Uh, but uh, there's the joke in there about if Mary Tyler Moore married and then divorced Steven Tyler, then remarried uh, Demi Moore, then divorced her and married like Mandy Moore. Would it be Mary Tyler Moore, Tyler Moore, Moore, Moore or something like that? Yeah, Joe, oh, so I think good. you, I really appreciate the way you've gone with that. Uh, I have put in Slightly more effort? No, though I won't say much more effort. My first answer is a fictional character. It's Roy Kent. I think Roy Kent is the footballer father that we all want. Uh, uh, For people who have watched Ted Lasso, he's essentially an angrier Ron Swanson, but somehow more more vulnerable and maybe as rich. We know Ron Swanson has gold buried around his property. Roy Kent, a footballer who's been making the money so he could, you know, afford that life of luxury, but also probably will actually listen to you. So I think Roy Kent, a good dad. George Weah, we seem to know to be a good dad because Timothy Weah seems like a smart, independent dude who can play soccer, but also uh, seems very into fashion, seems very into music, seems interested in a lot of different things. So I feel like we have an example of George Weah being a good dad right there. Also, having a dad for a president is pretty cool. And then my final one, I know nothing about him other than how he played, and that's enough for me. Chabi Alonso can also be uh, a father figure. I got no problems with that. Just because he looks a bit like Jason Bateman or... I don't know what it is. It's just like, I feel like it's like the, the stoicism on the field. He seems like he's got like the sensitive therapist beard. So I feel like there would be that sort of like, hey, man, you're doing great, but also play better. Like you want this sort of I need the the like pick yourself up, dad, but also the like, hey, you're you're doing great pat on the back, dad, at the same time. Excellent. Excellent logic. And I think my favorite of your picks there, Taylor, is Roy Kent. We already know yep. he's an excellent uncle. Um, yep. <laughs> so excellent father figure, I'd imagine, as well. Uh, I've got a few picks. Number one on my list was one that Joseph already mentioned. It's not Joseph Joseph's uh, dad, but it's um, one Mutter, who I think is, you know, one of the nicest people in the game. I think True. a lot of my list, when I was thinking about this, it's people who you'd want to hang out with and have a beer with, perhaps. And I think one Mutter is very high on that list. You know, very intelligent, very charitable, and so on and so forth. Another one, I thought, in that same ilk, James Milner. Very grounded genuinely hilarious person and he's Ooh. the kind of person he's got real dad qualities because he could do yeah, anything yeah yeah I, can, can you imagine him like building you a dining room table out of reclaimed wood or something like that or if you know oh. getting the pizza oven going no in the i can't because james milner is so james milner is the one who bought a ruler to measure another ruler but, but then taylor he can use that second ruler to measure the table legs it's perfect this is true imagine- i just think sorry i just think about like uh there's a Kirby Enthusiasm episode where uh, I think it's uh, uh, 
Marty Funkhauser's father has passed. And he's like, he lived it to the fullest. Every other Tuesday, a haircut. He enjoyed, like, moderate tea. <laughs> like, like that's how he lived it to the fullest. That's what I think of with Hamas Milner. No, but with Milner, just think of his tool shed, Taylor. Just think of all the dad jobs he'd do every day. That's true. That's true. brilliant. All right. Uh, and another one is a former player, better known as a manager, Jurgen Klopp. Just because Ooh. hugs. The hugs would be unreal. <laughs> oh, that's they? a good call. Yeah. Wouldn't they? <laughs> Every day coming down the stairs and, and just being greeted by someone who has way too much energy to really get your day started. Just picture, if you will, like your wedding day and your dad is Jurgen Klopp and he's coming over for one. He's got his arms spread wide. Can you imagine the joy you'd feel at that point? You know, someone with great leadership, someone who always says the right thing. He likes a drink. He likes a joke. He likes a smoke as well. Just uh, all right. Imagine like Thanksgiving's coming up, Joe. Jurgen Klopp carving your turkey. What do you think? (laughs) As long as he's doing it with some gegenpressing twisted in there, I'm all for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm picturing because I think he is probably pretty relaxed away from the pitch. But I'm choosing to believe that, like, if we're doing Thanksgiving meal prep, he's there, like, on the you know, in the background of the kitchen, clapping and motivating, and like, you got to dress that faster. That's gonna get stuff quicker. Come on, don't back down. Don't let the chicken think it's winning. Like, or turkey, I guess it is. Yeah, I feel like he'd be he'd be a good dad in that way. He'd also be good for like waking you up in the morning because I feel like he could just like smile and the 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 brightness of the smile would be enough to wake you up. There's no sleeping through that. Imagine if your alarm was Jurgen Klopp's gentle laugh as well. That would be wonderful to wake up to. <laughs> Ryan, that's, that's weird. That's I'm just going to be honest. That's, yeah. that's super weird. <laughs> we should move on from that question. Thank you very much for the question indeed, Gillian. Uh, we'll move on to one from Kenneth Seiden. Hello, Kenneth. Um, this is a great one. If you could go back and place a player in their prime and place them at a different club or different playing style, what would it be? Kenneth's vote is for Jamie Vardy to go into the Red Bull system. I'm oh, not sure so which good. Red Bull system, but uh, Joe, go ahead. Oh, I just am jealous that Kenneth thought of that one before I did, or he kind of took it off the board because that's a great pick, Kenneth. Jamie Vardy getting him behind and impressing and doing a lot of those things when he was a little bit younger and had the legs to do it consistently. It's a great pick. I, I've got a couple here. I've got a couple for stylistic reasons, like Kenneth says, and then I've got a couple that just I think would be fun. And so I'll start with the ones that actually answer Kenneth's question. First, I've got Gareth Bale moving to Atletico Madrid instead of Real Madrid back in 2013. So so he moved to, to the La Liga Giants back in 2013 from Tottenham. But I think it would have been really entertaining to see Gareth Bale under Diego Simeone, under a manager that at that time really did rely on defensive solidity and then counterattacking moments, right? If we think about Gareth Bale, his best skill in his prime was his speed. He, he I mean, there's that that gif of him being out of bounds and then running back, almost curving his run back inbounds to get back on the ball and continue down the wing. That's that's the stuff that Gareth Bale could do at the height of his powers. And seeing him really run into space for Atletico Madrid, I think, would have been hugely entertaining. Less so now, but but certainly back in the mid-2010s. And then the other one I have that I, I almost forgot that this hadn't happened or that this combination of things hadn't happened, Matt Hummels playing under Pep Guardiola really is is what I want to see. Matt Hummels at Bayern Munich, maybe just a season earlier would have done this. So he, Hummels moved back to Bayern from, from Dortmund in 2016, but just missed Pep. Pep had just moved out of, of Bayern Munich at the time. And just seeing Matt Hummels get on the ball, drive it forward, pass the ball. And we see him, we've seen him do this stuff plenty in the past, but really getting a chance to dive into him more and discuss him as one of the best center backs in the world, a title that often comes for players of all positions when you're playing under Pep Guardiola, I think that would have been fitting and it would have been a lot of fun, guys. I like it. Tay-Tay, what are your thoughts? 
Uh, I like I like all of those from Joseph. I will be honest and say that I initially misread this question and just moved players to different eras, but I do also have some answers from moving players to different clubs. Um, but I will start with, if I could move two players from a different era to like the same team, basically, I would move prime Josie Altidore to this current U.S. national team. Joe, am I wrong in thinking that like Josie at his peak does a lot of what we need that number nine to do uh, presently? I think so. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know for sure about a lot of those things, but he certainly had a lot more physical qualities in terms of speed. And, and I, mm-hmm. I think Peralta would have liked to work with a player like that. Because I think we I look at that number nine spot like with Ricardo Pepe and it's we want someone who can lead the line, be good in the air, but then also play back to goal, link up play, drop in, can do a bunch of different things based on what's needed. I feel like that was all Josie, but it wasn't maybe like the right system, the right time. He had injury issues. So maybe he would make the U.S. better. The one I would really, really love is to move uh, prime Roy Keane to the current Manchester United team. I feel like he would actually murder somebody in training, but maybe that's what that team needs is a little bit of an intimidation factor. I thought about it a lot as to who is the player that he would probably get into it with the most. And my conclusion, weirdly, is Bruno Fernandes, because I think Paul Pogba is smart enough to recognize that there is a psychopath playing in the team, and I've got to sort of let him do what he needs to do, and I'm going to respond accordingly. But Bruno, I feel like, might kind of go toe-to-toe with Roy Keane and also has visible tattoos, and that feels like a thing that Roy Keane would spotlight (laughs) right away. Uh, The other two, moving like a player to a different club, I would love to move in his prime Arturo Vidal to present-day Liverpool. That feels like a match made in heaven, the kind of all-action midfielder who also has the technical expertise and a little bit of that edge, a little bit of that bite. I feel like he'd do well under Jurgen Klopp. And I would very much enjoy moving Ajax Johan Cruyff of the 1970s uh, to play for Barcelona in the early 1990s because I want Johan Cruyff to be coached by Johan Cruyff and I want to see how catastrophically that like erupts. Maybe. Could we get Johan and Jordi on the same team as well, Taylor? <laughs> that would be fun, I, wouldn't it? I feel like we're, and maybe, and then both of them enter like a polyamorous relationship with Joe, and it's Johan, Jordi, Joseph. Can that be the name of the <laughs> of the unit? I like that plan too. Her boy. Yeah. Um, that, those are some excellent choices there as well, Tete. I'm going to start off with um, Diego Maradona. Uh, I want prime Diego Maradona. I think I guess it's prime. 1986 Diego Maradona. I want him to sure. be born in London. Um, so he's playing for England instead of clever, for clever boy in the 1986 World Cup. So things go a little differently. Uh, maybe he uses his hands, maybe he doesn't. Either way, England go all the way, baby. I mean, you could argue that uh, you could move Diego Maradona to most teams and things would improve. One for you, Taylor, which I, I got thinking about this morning. Paul Gascoigne um, rejected a move to Manchester United, reported at least once in the late 80s, early 90s, saying that he didn't think he could get uh, Brian Robson and Neil Webb out of the team at the time. I wonder, Taylor, what Manchester United would have been in the early 90s if Paul Gascoigne had gone to Old Trafford, maybe playing with Andy Cole, maybe even Eric Cantona comes along on that timeline as well. What do you think? I think it's really interesting because also we know about Paul Gascoigne's personal demons and everything that has kind of plagued him throughout his career. And looking at, say, Ryan Giggs when he was a player and Sir Alex Ferguson, the famous story is like leaves a benefit gala to show up at a house party that Lee Sharp was showing and basically telling Ryan Giggs, like, shape up or I'm done with you. And Giggs makes that choice to sort of change the way he's approaching his playing career. I don't want to talk too much about Ryan Giggs and his post-playing career, uh, but... 
you look at the contrast between the way his career goes and the way Lee Sharp's career went, where Sharp continued to kind of drink and live that lifestyle. And maybe Ferguson would have been able to, to be the one to kind of get through to Gaza to maybe get a reaction and keep him focused and a focused Gaza with maybe a little bit of a drink because I don't think he's going to give it up entirely. But I think that would be a very frightening animal. And I would love to have him with Eric Cantona. That is a strike partnership that, again, could like explode in a spectacular fashion, but also could score like nine goals before doing so. Yeah, Gaza and Cantona, Taylor, that could be an ego implosion waiting to happen, but I would certainly have loved to have seen it. Joe, I've got one other on my list. I'm less confident on this one, but I wanted to get Roberto Carlos moved somewhere as a star wing back. What do we think about maybe in a Conte Chelsea side over Alonso or something like that? Oh, that would be tons of fun, right? A team that really emphasizes the the outside backs or or really just emphasizes playing and, and using width. And Conte does a lot of that stuff. There's a lot more to it, but but I think that would be tons of fun, Ryan. Yeah, excellent, excellent. I I, I was trying to think of well, he'd fit in, he'd be most fun in most teams. I would suggest Joe being the, yeah. the kind of player he was. Oh, actually, I've got one other. I'd move uh, Luis Suarez to MK Dons because um, he's a giant trash can. Um, <laughs> so th- that's any any more for any more Taylor? Any more from you? Nope, that's it for me. I do. I got, I got two. I got two go real Joe, quick. Go. Sorry. These are not stylistic. So, Kenneth, these don't actually answer your question, but I thought they'd be fun anyway. I want to move Jan Oblak to I have to Manchester United. I, the idea is just to move him to a club where I think he'll get more credit than he does. He's been one of the best goalkeepers in the world, one of the best shot stoppers for the last four or five seasons now. Won a title at Atleti. I mean, just a phenomenal goalkeeper that I feel doesn't get talked about enough. And then my other one is is just finding a way to get Pepe and, and David Luiz on the same team uh, <laughs> because the chaos, guys, the chaos. That's it. That's all I have. <laughs> Good stuff. Thank you very much, Kenneth, that question. We'll be right back with more questions after this quick break. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we have returned, and we return with a question from RJ Hawkins. Here we go. What if FIFA went to a three-year cycle for the World Cup? That would allow for one championship each year, a continental group tournament like the Nations League, a continental tournament like the Euros or the Gold Cup or Copper America and so on, and then the World Cup. Maybe, says RJ, the answer isn't two or four, but three. Joe, to quote Zed and Maren Morris, FIFA, why don't we just meet them in the middle? <laughs> three years, what do you think? Um, I don't know that this is a bad idea because I, th- I think there's a lot of things that go into coordinating. Well, I know there's a lot of things that go into coordinating the international calendar, and I don't love the idea of shifting away from what we have now. Feels to me like 
trying to fix something that isn't broken. But I, I think this is a, a pretty solid plan from RJ. If FIFA is intent on moving the, the international calendar around, you could have you know, a tournament in year one over the summer. You could have a tournament in year two over the summer, like RJ is talking about. Then you could fit in World Cup qualifying along the way. The, the maybe one challenge here is that FIFA in their two year plan seems to be seemed seemed to be intent on reducing the number of international windows, or at least that was something that they talked about. And if you're trying to fit multiple tournaments in over the course of a couple of years, and then you're also trying to fit World Cup qualifying in, maybe that doesn't quite align with what they're looking for. But weirdly for me, the the biggest thing that I noticed immediately that could be holding this idea back is just having a World Cup in an odd year. I think not having it in an even year after this long could end up confusing people. Uh, and that's not a great reason to say no to this proposal, but it is what came to mind for me pretty early on. Hang, hang on, Joe. Do you think people are going to look at their watch and go, hang on, it's an odd year. I'm confused. What is this? A World Cup in 2025? Excuse me? Nuh-uh. <laughs> I'll have to go and check some newspapers to see who's the president and so on. The Women's World Cup is maybe not loving this conversation. Um, I, I will say I, I, with that said, agree with Joe entirely. And I like really had a strong response to this when I first read the question. I'm like, no, that would never work. Like, of course not. And then I just realized like, that's just me because I think I like even numbers and I like like the two, four cycle. Three years is not my usual sort of way of doing things, but thinking about it, it does kind of make a lot of sense. And I think it is just a matter of, I, I get your point, Joe, that I think FIFA likes the, 18, 22, 26, 30, you sort of know the math really simple. If you're good at uh, plus four, you got this. <laughs> uh, and and the plus three is like, even your odd year, it is sort of a, more of a calculation. I know that sounds silly, but I genuinely think that is a thing that does kind of hold people back from that, because otherwise it does make a lot of sense to me. Qualifying might be a little bit condensed, because if you have a thing every single summer, you're going to have to find ways to get qualifying to happen. But that said... They seem less concerned about that with a two-year World Cup, so I think a three-year gives us even more time to figure it out. So well, I initially was against this, and so now I'm kind of in favor of it. And Taylor, I'm so glad you brought up the Women's World Cup there as well, because I think that's a really important part of this, and yeah. one reason why I don't really... It's another reason why I don't really like the idea of FIFA cluttering up the international calendar more with more stuff on the men's side, right? Not that watching soccer is bad. I enjoy watching soccer, and I, I like that we have a lot of it to watch at any given time. But the idea of of cluttering up the calendar and, and taking away, likely taking some attention away from the Women's World Cup and, and other competitions in that vein, I, I don't I don't love that. That doesn't sit really well with me. I would much rather watch, ideally, the men's national team play in a World Cup in 2022 and the women's national team play in, in the World Cup in 2023. I like that that format, and I don't I don't want to take away from that idea. You're not going to like my suggestion um, of following the Copper America and doing a random amount of years between each tournament. <laughs> and, um, I, I think I've got um, two issues with the three-year cycle. I, I too, Taylor, am coming around to it. But one issue is that I don't want to give concede anything to FIFA. If they want Fair. to, I think we should go to six. I don't yep. want to conf- give anything to them, frankly. <laughs> the other main issue, and it's more important, is that the Olympics are on a four-year cycle. So we'd end up with a summer with both an Olympics and the World Cup. And for mm. the general global sports fan, Taylor, I feel like that's an issue. Yeah, but I think for FIFA, who have been slowly trying to kill the Olympics, at least Olympic soccer, since the early 1900s, I feel like they'd be fine with it. I don't think they would mind going toe-to-toe against the Olympics to prove once and for all that they have supremacy. And I think we've seen that before, haven't we? What, weren't the tw- or no, I guess it was 2016 and then 2014. I just, they were both in Brazil, so it always throws me off there for a moment. But <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Maybe that would be 
too much sport in one summer, but I feel like FIFA are already kind of going that direction anyway. And again, if we go to a two-year cycle, there will be a Summer Olympics and a World Cup in the same summer. So how they balance that one, I think we're already going to have to find out. Oh, yeah, I didn't even think of that. That's going to happen anyway if FIFA get their own way. Um, oh, boy. Well, oh one boy. last question for me on this. Taylor, will the two-year cycle actually happen, or will it, will it go the way of the Super League? Uh, I really hope it goes the way of the Super League. It does feel like FIFA tend to kind of just do what they want and don't really suffer any repercussions. The same FIFA that I think nine of the ten bid committee have been indicted for, for corruption, but that seems to just get kind of like not really addressed or moved along. So I feel like if this is what Infantino wants, they will eventually find a way to make it happen. I hope there is enough opposition to it to keep it at the four-year cycle because it it like we could easily do that modern technology modern uh transport it, you could easily have a world cup every single two years but i think it really does take away from the spectacle and take away from the just sort of immensity of the occasion and it makes it that global party it feels like the world sort of stops for this month as everybody like sort of forgets other things to just focus on soccer and you learn more about other cultures and countries and their backgrounds. And I think it's a really wonderful thing. And the more often it happens, the more it just becomes like an every two year thing. Ah, yeah, it's every year, whatever. It doesn't really matter. And I think it loses some of that severity, some of that just enormity of the occasion. And I really hope that we end up keeping it with four years, though I suspect given the expanded World Cup and the way the bids have gone, that we will end up getting one every two years. And Joe, where do you fall on the Arsene Wenger opinion spectrum here? I think it'll happen at some point. I don't know how soon, but I would be surprised if we don't see it at some point. (sighs) That's a giant sigh from (laughs) me. Uh, Thank you very much, RJ, for that question. We go now to Richard Rolson. Um, Taylor and Joe, I ask you Mm -hmm. to raise your shields to prepare yourself for the rocks and rotten fruit that are about to be thrown at us for the answer to this question. Uh, Richard asks, in what order would you rank the following leagues in terms of style, skill, level and entertainment? The leagues are, gentlemen, the Scottish Premier League, the English Championship, Major League Soccer, and Liga Emekis. I'm going to stand back for a second. Joe, go. Uh, sorry, I need to. Oh, okay, good. Just dodged a rock. We're, we're fine. Yeah, we're <laughs> totally good. Um, part of this question was hard for me to answer. The other part was easy. I'll start with the part that I think is easy, and maybe folks won't like this so much. Skill level. I don't know really how to rank leagues on style, and so I just kind of skipped that. And, and I feel like style and entertainment kind of go together, so I'm just going to loop those in together more so. But as far as skill level goes... Liga MX, number one of these four, uh, the English Championship, number two, MLS, number three, and, and Scottish, Scottish Premiership, Scottish Premier League, number four. And for me, th- those four are a pretty logical ordering. Not, not that it's bad if you guys have a different order, but it, it, it seems to make sense from what I've seen of those leagues. Liga MX is, is consistently better than Major League Soccer in any cross-league competition that the, those two leagues are involved in. That will change at some point, I imagine, but certainly hasn't changed yet. And the Championship is... Is really strong at the top, right? There's been some excellent teams there. You think about Brentford last season and the work they've done this year in the Premier League. You think about Leeds in 2019-20. There's obviously a lot of quality there, and, and I don't think MLS has them beat either. It's probably between the, the championship and Liga Mekis for number one in terms of skill. But MLS number three, and then I've got Scotland number four, very top-heavy. And I think Graham would agree with that if he was here, although I'd be curious to hear his perspective on this. So Liga Mekis, uh, EFL Championship, MLS, Scottish Premiership in terms of skill level entertainment play is a little bit different for me i've got liga mechies and mls as one and two respectively oh. they're they tend to be open they tend to be 
really end to end at times. This is not generally, this is not, uh, I should say altogether true for every single team in those leagues, but Liga MX MLS as the top two championship third, uh, a lot of talent at the top, as I said, but as you go down the table, teams tend to get a lot worse and a lot less fun and conditions that they're playing in, which I think is a factor here also tend to get worse. And then sadly, I've got Scotland number four again. Bottom of both lists, Joe. I'm so sorry, um, Graham, if you're listening. Um, I agree with your first list, but I would like to uh, put it to you, Joe, that I would put the English Championship a little higher in terms of entertainment. Yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, lots of good players, but I think what where it beats out, or maybe where it matches Major League Soccer, is the the parity and the fact that there's a new cont- there's very often new contenders every season yeah. by by the fact that it's a second tier division and you're getting big dogs potentially coming down and you know a mixture of teams competing at the top i think it's a really really entertaining league so i would i would just say maybe to push the championship a little higher is that fair joe yeah it's fair and and this is so subjective right like there's mm-hmm. so many factors that we could toss in here um, you know, it, it's that's why it's hard to do this and come up with a list that we'll all agree on. But yeah, Ryan, I, I can totally see your reasoning there. Thank you. Taylor, where do you stand on this one? No, I already gave my answer. We can move on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh-huh. I think my answer, first off, I object to this question. Uh, I feel like this question only exists for people to debate. Like, there's no way we're ever going to get consensus agreement on this. So nope, in some ways, it feels, see, exactly. it feels like this is sort of a fool's errand and we're just setting ourselves up for disaster. But if I have to answer in my personal rankings that I do not care about and have nothing invested in, uh, my kind of thought process goes, I think the championship is better than the Scottish Premier League. I think Major League Soccer is better than the Scottish Premier League. I think Liga Mekis is better than MLS. I think MLS is more entertaining than the championship or the SPL. And to some extent, Liga Mekis, because of the clausura apertura, I have a hard time knowing like who's won what and when. And then the season starts all back over again. And that's my own sort of bias from not understanding or not being as familiar with that system. But I think I end up finding Major League Soccer the most interesting because you have the regular season that sort of has periods when it doesn't seem to matter, but that seems to be when teams figure themselves out and find some things out, and then they end up getting better, and then you have the playoffs. And so I think, weirdly, if I'm ranking them, my cop-out answer is basically going to be that I have like a tie for first, a three-way tie, and then I have the SPL in fourth. Oh, dear. <laughs> and, Another and to be fair, To be fair, I think if Graham were here, he would be the most negative of the four of us yeah, about the SPL. Probably. So I'm not so <laughs> upset about it. <laughs> Uh, okay, let me slightly rephrase the question for you, gents. The most recent champion of each of these respective divisions, um, would it be Liga Mekis who would be the most uh, dominant team? Are we talking for this season or last season? This season? Like, who is, like, I don't even know who's top of the championship right let's, now. Let's just say, the you know, of the quality of the kind of teams who would win those championships. Would okay. it be a championship side or a Liga Mekis side who would, who would be the more skillful, the better team, if you will? Oh, probably a championship team, but it's really close. There's a lot of money in Liga Mekis. I think maybe some folks out there don't realize that. Uh, But that's that's a that's a good question, Ryan. I uh, I I pass pass. Pass. I always I always go with, and I think we have a a a disparity in the number of teams because championship has 24. But I think if you did like first place in the championship versus bottom of Liga Mekis, and then kind of reverse engineered it, I think. The championship wins more of those, like Bournemouth, Fulham, I think are going to win more games. But I think as you go, you end up getting more of a balance. And those mid-table ones, that's where I think Liga Mekis might have a slight advantage. So I think 
One playing one, I would back Bournemouth to get a win, but I think overall Liga Mekis has a lot more quality than probably people would expect. I agree with you, Joe. Guys, we just there's an easy way to solve this and settle it and make it not so subjective. We just expand the League's Cup that there MLS and Liga yes. Mekis are already working on, which they already expanded once. We expand it again, cancel the current iteration, toss in the championship, toss in, toss in the Scottish Premier League, and, and we call it good. Four, four League League's Cup rolls right off the tongue. Let's combine all four leagues, Joe. Let's take it a step further and just have like a 60, 80-team league. Why don't we just do that? That'll, that'll be even more fun. Or we we invent the Major League Premier Championship. How's that? Okay. I, can you great. all stop giving like FIFA and UEFA ideas? Because I feel like Johnny Infantino is listening to this and just frantically scribbling notes. Like, yeah, a 900-team Club World Cup. Let's make it happen. Well, if he is listening, hi, Johnny. We're going to take a break now, Johnny. Please buy our stuff and use the code TSS. We'll be right back. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. 
From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Shocker Show, we are back. Here's a question from Mr. Matt Koss. Hello, Matt. Uh, Matt says, similar to when Dick Fosbury revolutionized the high jump, what was the biggest revolutionizing moment in the soccer world? To uh, refresh your memory, gents, uh, October 1968 is the day that high jumping changed forever. 21-year-old Dick Fosbury of uh, Oregon State University invented the back layout style of clearing yourself over the bar uh, instead of, sort of, I guess, diving headfirst or diving over it in a different way. The Fosbury flop, that completely changed the game. So we're asking what uh, moves in soccer changed the game. Now, Joe, I've interpreted this not as like a rule change that revolutionized the game, not like offsides being invented or the back pass or anything like that. This is, I'm, I'm interpreting this as a single player uh, revolutionizing the game by playing it different to anyone else. Uh, I've got two, two for you. My first one is Johan Cruyff and the Cruyff turn which is, of course, where you feign a pass by dragging the ball behind you, behind your standing leg and do a 180 turn to beat your man. First seen on the big stage at the 1974 World Cup because that changed dribbling. It changed soccer forever, pretty much. That was, you know, when I was a kid, one of the first things I was taught when I was taught dribbling skills. My second one, gents, is the Penenka. Uh, Czech player Antonin Penenka at the 1976 European Championships final in Belgrade. He took the fifth penalty in the final against West Germany, and he only went and penenkered it, didn't he? Invented it with his own surname, didn't he? To uh, to do a uh, get success for the Czechs in that tournament, and we've since seen it on the biggest stage with Zidane scoring one in the 2006 World Cup final. Alexis Sanchez put one in in the Copa America final of 2015. Andrea Pirlo did one against England at the Euro 2012 quarters as well. So those Joe are my that was two a backbreaker nominees. <laughs> Joe, what do you think? Those are good, and I, and I like your interpretation of the question, Ryan. I interpreted it a little bit differently. I actually just twisted it to make sure I could just answer golden goal, which is absolutely my – no, I'm <laughs> just kidding. Not golden goal. It's silver goal. Uh, my my answer is less about an individual player and in something that I think changed how the game is played, which I think falls under the definition that Matt is leading us towards here with his question. Uh, total football is my answer to this question. The, the Ajax and Dutch national teams in the 1970s really popularized this. And there were roots in, in this style of using the ball and using space. Conceptually, total football is about, you know, fluidity and, and really making the field big in possession and then pressing to get the ball back. And, and a lot of those, those things were around before the 70s in Austria and in Hungary. But that's when it came to the big stage, like you're talking about, Ryan, with the Cruyff turn. Similar idea in that decade, it started to really become a thing. And now today, it's huge. And, and those principles are found in 
almost every team in the world and almost every big team, especially the, the, the elite soccer teams that we see now play some sort of style. 90% of them play some sort of total football style where they're trying to keep the ball. They're trying to use uh, possession and pressure to really cause the opposition problems. And without that, that era, without the seventies and Ryanus Michaels and Johan Cruyff, I don't think soccer looks really at all like it does today. Excellent. I like that one a lot, Taylor. Uh, Joe, sorry. Taylor, how do you feel? Um, I agree with Joe. That was that was my answer from the sort of like innovation side of the game, I think. And especially when you look at this, like the Dutch teams in the 70s, especially the Dutch national team in like the 74 World Cup, I think it was. The way they press, it looks like something out of a Disney movie of how completely unprepared opposition teams are for it and it's you can tell that they're looking around like is that allowed you can do this like the way that that sort of and and the kind of lightning bolt change that that affects i think uh is worth sort of always remembering i think if we're talking about individual actions you could probably throw uh Jean-Marc Bosman in there for the kind of stance he took in allowing free transfers to exist yes. because before that you didn't have players having the ability to move at the end of their contract. Teams kept their rights. Can you imagine such a situation, Joe? That never happens all the time in Major League Soccer. No, uh, but... no of course not. <laughs> so, so I think that sort of revolutionized player movement. And then I think from a more... I did also have a more kind of like structural, big picture, uh, changes to the game answer. Uh, and I would say that the answer is probably professionalizing the sport in the first place, like back in the 1800s, that you allow for for the kind of growth of the game at a professional level and a dedicated growth at that. But that's no fun. So my answer is the elimination of the back pass rule, even though it is a change of a rule and not necessarily a stylistic change, how that just is a complete shift in the way teams attack and defend and prepare for games and see out games. It kind of fundamentally changes soccer at a time when it needed to be changed because it had gotten kind of boring and kind of dull or doring, I guess, is the combination of those two things. So those would be my four answers in total. Excellent. I particularly like the Bosman one there, Taylor. That's a really good shout. And if it's if it's uh, something that's named after someone, it does feel like it has uh, <laughs> it certainly has a revolutionizing effect. The one I was bit. trying to work out, gents, is diving and simulation and i was trying to work out the start point or like the evolution thereof uh from my experience like watching english soccer it was players in the sort of mid 90s like david ginola who first started to you know fairly shamelessly try and go down for fouls i didn't ever see it until players like him but i don't know if there's any one particular player who sort of revolutionized by saying wait a second we can simulate injuries here taylor any thoughts on that i don't have any idea who the first player I can remember diving was. I just remember being like, oh, that's the thing you're not supposed to do. But I do love the idea of the first person to be like, wait, I can just pretend to have been hurt and then see what happens and it works out for me and I get a free kick. Okay, let's do this. I remember the first time I saw a player get booked for simulation in a game. I was like 14 years old and I had never seen it before and it genuinely blew my mind that an official could spot that. <laughs> uh, and it And it was sort of a game changer for me. So yeah, I think the... Diving, but then the ability to spot a dive as well. Equally revolutionary. Yeah, someone someone was the first person to dive in the game somewhere in the world, Taylor. Someone was the first person to take off their shirt when they scored like, as well. These these things will happen for a first time at some point. Except were, that I think I think like we know how like physical and violent football was in its early early days, and I wonder if a dive back then was like, oh, he barely broke your shin. Get up. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. That's a solid question, Matt. Thank you very much for that one. We move now to a question from Zach Lippert. Zach says, 
How does Antonio Conte's style of three at the back differ from Nuno's Wolves three at the back? If Nuno was unwilling or unable to keep his style when he moved to Spurs, what does Conte have that Nuno did not? Uh, Trophies, I'd say, Joe, is one of the things that Conte has. What else do you think? That is a big part of this, and I, I think a big difference between these two coaches is their pedigree and, and Conte's experience with big teams. I think that plays a, a massive part here. I want to start my answer to this question from Zach, my, my response, because I don't have a full answer. I want to start by saying a formation, a formation does not equal style. I think that's something that we conflate and confuse when we're talking about soccer. Nuno Nuno's style is not defined by his back three shape, just like Conte's style is not defined by his back four shape, right? Nuno's tactics are bigger than a formation. Conte's tactics are bigger than a formation. Nuno I mean, switched, as this question is, is leading us to talking about, Nuno switched from that back three at Wolves to a back four, mostly with Tottenham. So you can even see that Nuno doesn't necessarily define his tactics that way. So for me, this is more about a manager's overall ability to to turn a team into a good soccer team and, and less about a manager's willingness or unwillingness or ability or inability to stick to a particular shape or formation. Conte, as you're, as you're saying, Ryan, has a bigger, better body of work at top clubs and, and his style fundamentally is more aggressive with and without the ball than Nuno's style. So some stats for you guys. Nuno at Wolves in the Premier League 2018. 13th in possession in the league, 10th in expected goals. Really good defensively, though. Fourth least expected goals allowed in the league. That's phenomenal, especially for a newly promoted team. Attempted the third most long balls in the league and the least defensive pressures in the final third in the league. Those numbers stayed more or less the same headed into 2019. So not really wanting to pass the ball short, mostly playing long, not high pressing, very defensive, okay at creating chances. And then 2020, Nuno's last season with, with Wolves in the Premier League, Possessed a little bit more, expected goals went down, started allowing more chances. That was a, a real decline for that team. Conte's teams, when you when you try to compare them statistically, even even teams played in the same three-at-the-back shape, if we do want to use that comparison, uh, had more possession, better at creating chances, and, and press a lot more. And that's the difference. I think Tottenham, in a lot of ways, is looking for a, a more modern manager, a manager that can play a style that has at least some of those total football principles. Is Conte Pep? Is Conte Tuchel? Is Conte Klopp? No, they all have different intricacies in how they coach, but Nuno was not effective with the the players and I, I think struggled to make that jump from Wolves to Tottenham. Conte, I don't think will have that problem and I think his style is just entirely different than Nuno's and I think he'll have a lot of success with it over time if he's given that time. Yeah, I think I agree with you there, Joe. Yeah, for me, it's it's the headlines are that Conte in his style knows how to use attacking players a bit more effectively, arguably. And he's definitely a bit more monastic in actually sticking with the back three, unlike Nuno. Taylor, your thoughts? Yeah, I think a lot of it for me starts with the situation, the circumstances of their hiring. And uh, I am a nominal UK basketball fan. Mostly I just went to school in Kentucky, so you're either UK or U of L or you sort of have to kind of choose one or the other. And I remember when UK was trying to replace Tubby Smith, this is a very esoteric reference i apologize in advance uh they looked at a bunch of different options they went after like i think billy donovan and they had a clear list of candidates they didn't get their top one or their top two so they went with their third choice i think it was who in his press conference said like i'd rather be the third choice at uk than the first choice anywhere else and he proceeded to have a very mediocre season then they go and get john calipari and here we are he is still there and he is still quite good at what he does and it feels like anytime you know that you're not the first choice the expectations are just sort of like lowered, but at the same time, the 
annoyance is already going to be there. That like, ah, you're not the first person we wanted and you're not this young up and comer. You're not this young upstart. And for Nuno, there's the kind of stoicism. There's the, there's the, the quiet way he speaks. And I don't think that matched with the sort of attitude that they wanted coming out of the Jose Mourinho era. And I think so you have this kind of manager who has a reputation for for getting Wolves up and having them be consistently in the Premier League, but simultaneously is more defensive. It's more about frustrating and then countering through very effective attackers. You don't have a ton of the ball. And if one of those players is out or if something is kind of malfunctioning on the day, it can be very problematic. And there was this sort of charge for him to revolutionize his tactics, to change it up, to find a new level to his game. And so you're basically asking your sixth choice manager, hey, can you kind of change up fundamentally how you want to manage so that we can be more of the team we want to be? And I think with Antonio Conte, if you asked him to do that, he would not take the job. He's He, in my mind, is similar to Bielsa of, I want the situation to be as I want it to be, or I will walk away. Uh, maybe Bielsa even more so. But for Conte, I think he now has almost carte blanche to do whatever he wants and has the backing of the club to sack people, to drop people, to promote people, to move players to different positions. And I think some of that is because of where they were under Nuno, but also a lot of that, to Joe's point, is that pedigree. It is that personality. If you know, here's this uh, manager who's won things across the board and has already won a Premier League title, we, we're we going to let him do what he wants. And we also know he is famously fiery and will kind of get into it with people, we're going to give him a little bit more hands-off approach than we would have maybe Nuno. So I think all of those off-the-pitch things factor into how he's going to manage and the way he approaches things. But on the pitch, I think it's going to be, though it will be a back three, I think we might see a midfield three at times as well. So that kind of three, five, two almost. I think of Nuno as maybe sometimes having more of like wingers or a 3-4-3. And then to Joe's point, sometimes it was a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1 this season. And that isn't that big of a deal when it comes to the formation. But a lot of it has to do with the ability of Conte's teams to be much more aggressive in the attack when they need to be when they want to be. I think the stat I saw was that they scored the third most goals of any of Europe's uh, teams in the top five divisions in the season he was at Inter. I think only Bayern and Atalanta scored more goals than his team, which isn't maybe what people would expect. So you're getting a manager who plays a similar formation, but the way they attack, the way they attack through the channels, through those wingbacks with a solid front two that relies on a kind of existing relationship, and I would say that is Son and Harry Kane, I think there's a lot to be excited about if you are a Tottenham fan. Uh, Taylor, I'm, I have to apologise at this point. I was distracted a lot by during your answer by the fact that someone is called Tubby Smith. Uh, this was not something I was aware of. Uh, I just looked him up. Hall of Famer, um, baby. Well, he's his name's Tubby and he's not Tubby. Uh, no. He coached UK, but it's yep. not in the UK. And he was born in Scotland, but not in the UK either. Well, who is this man? <laughs> Wait, where was he born? Where was he born in Scotland? Scotland, Sc- Maryland. So, okay, I thought you were going to say it was Kentucky. Kentucky is the weirdest state for that that I know of because there is Baghdad, Kentucky. There is Lebanon, Kentucky. There is, this is their pronunciation, Versailles, Kentucky. They have so many European cities in that state that for a minute I was like, yeah, he was born in Scotland, Kentucky. That checks out. Versailles, that's almost as bad as Notre Dame. (laughs) (laughs) I think I was, I was like, I forget, forget what the Richmond place was that I was sort of realizing like, oh, we've done that too. <laughs> like we've made, we've made a very pretty sounding thing into something that is not very pretty sounding. So I can't really throw stones, I guess. That's true. Uh, the English are guilty of that too. We say garage instead of garage. Ooh la la. 
Anyway. I think the English are guilty of a lot of things. That's least on the list. Yeah. Yeah, but thank you for bringing Tubby Smith into my life, Taylor. I do You're welcome, my friend. That. You're and welcome. Thank you, Zach, for the question. We've got one final question to round up this listener question show. Taylor, I'm going to aim this one at you, buddy. This one ah. is from Michael Hastings Black. How can we celebrate Daryl on November 29th? In addition to hugging people and using puns, what are some causes or charities that we could support in honor of the man? Yeah, that is a great question. Uh, you should... And just enjoy the day. You should hug some people, enjoy your family, uh, watch a game, watch a show you love, do all those things. If you did want to contribute to some uh, different organizations, you absolutely should. A few very good ones would be the uh, Colorectal Cancer Alliance. Daryl died of uh, uh, colon cancer that spread to his liver. But that is, uh, I think, the fastest growing form of cancer for like men under the age of 40 or 50. Uh, so the Colorectal Cancer, Colorectal cancer Alliance, whew, that's hard to say fast, uh, is an organization combating that and spreading awareness. Uh, an organization that was very near and dear to Daryl's heart would be Street Soccer USA. He organized the street soccer team here in Richmond. We uh, had them playing in the local amateur league uh, for multiple seasons. They did a lot with a uh, sober living facility here in Richmond as well uh, called The Healing Place. So if you wanted to, definitely The Healing Place would be another one. That's a Richmond-centric organization. I'm not even sure if they take donations, but if they do, uh, that would be one that I know would mean a lot to him. And the final one would be uh, the organization that won a humanitarian award in his honor, our local uh, soccer association, the Central Virginia Soccer Association, the CVSA. Uh, created the Daryl Grove Community Outreach Award uh, uh, to commemorate his passing, but also in honor of all the work he did in the local community. And uh, our friend Dustin was the one to win that award. Uh, he organizes a group called Richmond Conexiones, C-O-N-E-X-I-O-N-E-S. They organize, amongst other things, a free soccer camp that has provided access each summer to the beautiful game for over 10 years to primarily Latinx or BIPOC uh, kids from lower income families in Richmond's South Side. So it tends to be a lot of uh, native Spanish speakers who maybe don't have access to other facilities and they're uh, providing them with equipment and material and then uh, coaches and playing facilities and they get to kind of have these opportunities to play with other kids from similar backgrounds and it's a pretty great organization unfortunately i think their website is currently down i was texting with dustin today and he was like yeah i uh, i didn't realize that i need to get on that so i will try to provide a link uh, in the show notes to where you can support them and uh, a few of these other organizations but i would say those would be the the four big ones that i know meant a lot to daryl Thank you very much, Taylor. We will list all of those very worthy organizations in the show notes, as Taylor said, and some very good ways there for celebrating Daryl's birthday on November 29th. Gentlemen, that is listener questions for this week. Uh, Joseph, thank you so much for your contributions. Oh, thank you, Ryan. And Taylor Rockwell, pleasure as always, big dog. Right back at you, buddy. We'll be back with another one very soon. Watch the feed. Thank you very much, listeners. Bye. Yay. 